0: Thank you. Isn't it awesome? God is so good. Well, you're in for a treat today because we have with us uh, Dr. Scott Wilcher, who's come, and he'll be uh, sharing the word with us. Scott is um, a pastor of Oikos Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. Uh, He teaches organizational communication at Regent in their business uh, and leadership school. Um, He actually has served as youth pastor at St. Giles Presbyterian in Charlotte and uh, family and uh, youth uh, positions in Kempsville Presbyterian. We're mostly familiar with uh, those two churches. And he's now president and founder of um, the Upstream Project, um, a ministry dedicated to renewing congregations and organizations uh, in understanding cultural change which is um, a very timely subject for the church of Jesus in these days. So uh, without further ado, Scott, why don't you come, brother, and uh, let's give him a warm uh, welcome.
1: Let's check, oh good, that works. Excellent. Before I forget, the people who are sitting on the aisles, um, there should be a little stack of papers and half pages. If you will take one and then pass those that you have outward toward the windows, um, I am writing a book and would be interested in your responses to the fill in the blank questions there. The name and email are optional. Um, but I would love to get your response to the other questions. Um, it 's part of my research, and in the end will be helpful for everybody. now i 'm going to do something that 's bad educational form and talk while you 're supposed to be writing, and that 's just very confusing for everybody, so i 'm giving you a second to think about your answers and then you can write them in several years ago i was at that house and it is the house where my mother was raised it's a large piece of farmland or it sits on a large piece of farmland and my Um, family was gathered because there had been a wedding the afternoon evening before and we were sitting around in a room you can't see in that picture it's on the sort of the house is shaped like an l and it is the other part of the l that goes backwards from there and as we gathered there we were just telling stories my aunt louise was there she's in her 90s my mom's 88 we were gathered and, and. telling stories and laughing and there were probably 30 or 40 people in this very large room gathered and it was great fun and it was very comfortable because you know it's it's family and in the middle of all of this commotion and laughter and and good times somebody knocks on the door and this is out in the boonies and you don't just show up unless you call first or there's a problem or you're looking for trouble so one of my larger cousins went out to the door and came in and he passed and and went and sat down and behind him came this little man and he was just shuffling along, looking around and he came into the room and we're all quiet and a little bit irritated because we were having fun and now it stopped and now he's interrupted us And so we're nervous, because we don't know what's up. And somebody says in that loud voice that you use when you talk to really old people, can we help you? And he just ignored the question. And he looked around the room, and he saw my mom, and he said, hello, Anne. And he saw my Aunt Louise, and he went, hello, Louise. And my mom recognized him, and she yelled, "Buck!" and jumped up and gave him a big hug. And my Aunt Louise has bad knees, so she didn't do any jumping. But she got up eventually and came over and hugged Buck, their cousin. They hadn't seen for 30 years. And he was now an old man. They didn't even recognize him. And we, we got him a chair. We sat him down. We went to the car and got his wife, who's even older than he was, and brought her in and sat her down and got him something to drink and got him a little bit of late lunch, And jumped right in, telling stories and and just back where we were moments before when we'd been interrupted. And I tell you that story because for today, I am that old man that, that sort of shuffled into the midst of your family and interrupted a string of sermons by people that you know and know as family. But what I want to tell you very clearly is, I'm family, that I'm your brother in Christ, that we share the same Father, that I am not a threat to your theology, that I am not going to pervert your church in any way, that I prayed and and crafted this message for you, and my heart is for you. And I I need to say that clearly up front, because what I aspire to do today will take some trust, And we'll talk more about that. My goal today is to renew your minds. In the next 40 minutes, I want to turn the heart of your adult congregation toward the young people around you. And I want to transform your church culture in 40 minutes. And I have great confidence after first service that we can make great strides in that direction give you a quick preview. Here's where we're going today. I'm going to start and talk about the secret of Proverbs 21. Uh, Then talk about some examples of that to make it sort of real for you so it makes some sense. And then we'll take that new knowledge and apply it to some things that are in your brains and the culture of this church and every church in the United States. We'll apply it directly to those things. And then we'll talk about, so what? How does What do you do with it now that you're done knowing it, okay? I have shared this with the leaders of major corporations, GE and um, Blackbaud and lots of other companies, Sherwin-Williams, I've shared it with military leaders, I've shared it with university leaders, and I've shared it with leaders in the CIA. And all of them affirm that what you're about to hear works. It works about 88% of the time. Traditional change methods work about 30% of the time. This one works about 88% of the time. Now, I think it's God-breathed. I think it's God's design. I think it's straight out of Proverbs 21, and I want to share it with you today. But we have to pray because it's a big task. Father, we come still in your presence and still your presence in us and just ask, Father, will you change our hearts? Will you turn our hearts toward you and align our hearts as one? Will you let us be a loving and united people who know what you're doing and know how to respond? God, will you grant us great grace? To walk it out. And we look forward to what you'll do. You're a good God. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Proverbs 21. I want to talk about the secret hidden in this verse. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Look at it. Think about it for a second. I need you to soak in it and then we'll go on the heart of the king and your heart that we're talking about turning today is not the organ in your chest just to be clear it's not the the blood pumping muscle in your chest it is also not the feelings that you have we talk in, in sometimes in English uh, in this culture, we talk about giving your heart to someone and having them break your heart, and usually that's just talking about the emotions. He wears his heart on his sleeve, that sort of stuff. We sometimes talk about heart as just emotions. In Scripture, heart is not about emotions; it's about all of you. Scripture says, or in Scripture, it's the center of your thinking. It's the center of your emotions. It's the center of your moral activity and your physical activity. It is who you are, your essence in the center. Very much tied to will. Um, And so man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He's looking at that inner center of you. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, it's interchangeable with mind. Because sometimes in the Old Testament, the heart reasons... And sometimes in the Old Testament, the mind feels. So they swap back and forth. So we'll talk about renewing minds and turning hearts, sort of in the same breath, the same stream of thought, there, if you will. I would affirm with all my heart that God is the one who turns hearts, ultimately. He is sovereign Lord. And so, because I understand that, we pray. And we pray that God will turn the heart of our children in a particular way. And we pray that God will turn the heart of our church in particular ways. And God certainly turns hearts. But I want to make a case that it's also the responsibility of us as leaders, whether we're the leader in a household or the leader in an organization, a business, or a church, that it's our responsibility to begin to understand how do we turn hearts. Because in Malachi 4, 5, and 6 it says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah. Notice, this prophet is a man, just a guy. He's a prophet for sure, but still just a prophet. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So there's some possibility that he will fail. There's an alternative. Either he's gonna turn their hearts, or there's going to be this curse on your land, and it's not going to go well. So we hope he goes well. But God offers no promise in that verse that he will be successful because God is on his side. It's a huge responsibility to turn those hearts and save the nation. Also, what you get, David turned the hearts of the men of Judah as one man. That means he took them and aligned their hearts Somehow, some way, and they followed as one man. Imagine how this church would function if everyone here were as one man, where we just knew what God was doing and we knew how to do it as one man. It's possible. It happened with David. And so. My question for years has been, how in the world do you turn hearts? Because I started with the Malachi passage, and my heart was, how do, I, how do I turn the hearts of fathers to kids and kids to fathers? And how do I get the generations to begin to disciple and love each other well in the church? And clearly, God offers some insights in Proverbs 21, because God shows how he turns the hearts of kings. But how does turning of rivers inform the turning of hearts? And how do we turn hearts so that all the people in Myrtle Grove are aligned as one man? And those are the questions I want to begin to answer for you today. Proverbs 21.1, we already talked about it, is about turning rivers. God turns the hearts of kings as he turns channels of water. And so this picture is just a river that we're going to turn today. Right? And the river comes and flows together from various places and then creates a stream. Now, I told you that mind and heart are often interchangeable. So in our culture, we call this the stream of thought. I have this way of thinking. You walk in here and you think in particular ways, and this is the way you expect church to go. And over time other people begin to think the same way because they've had the same experience and eventually you get what's called a church culture Every organization does it and people think a particular way. This is the way our church is And I want to break that stream into layers for you if you will I want to take the stream of thought and sort of dissect it on the top what you see is the surface of our thought so today You're seeing the surface of my thought through what I'm saying, how I stand here, how I move my hands around strangely, and the PowerPoints that I created. All of those become my way of expressing thought to you. I look back and I can see whether you're bored, looking around, or whether you're really attentive, or whether you're nodding. I mean, I I can see from the surface what's going on inside you. Make sense? Okay. Below that surface there is this layer of social understanding for example i know in this situation it's best that i keep my shirt on because if i took my shirt off it would just be weird and creepy and furry but it would be but it wouldn't It wouldn't be right here. And I know that. No one taught me that. No one said, make sure when you preach, you keep your shirt on. They just, I just know that's probably the best thing to do. Because I can imagine what it would be like if I didn't. So we have this layer of understanding. Sometimes that's very formalized. When you come here, this is what you do. You bow, you kneel, you get up, you sing. And in and, and, and organizations, we have a policy manual that you follow. And if you go outside the boundaries, you know exactly what the consequences are. Sometimes it's very formal. Sometimes it's not formal at all, and you just learn it as you go. And sometimes there's vast knowledge that you get. When you walk into a youth group, very quickly you learn, oh, those, those people are the, the really cool people, and those people are not so cool, and, and these people are like this. And you learn the social stratas and you learn very quickly. And you do the same thing in a larger church. You do the same thing in every organization. So you begin to understand how it works socially. And that shapes then the way you think, and ultimately shapes the way you behave and what comes out on the surface. The worldview layer is the deepest layer of the stream. We talk a lot about Christian worldview, and in that worldview layer is the deepest layer, and it, it's where you think about consciously what you believe, your values, your attitudes toward the things around you, how you will, you know, um, think about your world and how you perceive reality to some degree. OK? Now. Here's what happens in a church. And this te- text is really small, but I'll read it for you. On the surface, when I go to churches, typically what I hear is, our young people are leaving. That's what I hear on the surface. And then as we explore, what do you do next? So what do we, how do we fix that? What are we, we going to do? Then typically what I hear is, well, we need some programming for the kids. We need a better uh, youth ministry we need to do worship differently. We need a different service. We need a different pastor. We've got to do some, some changes around here. Something's got to change. And they begin to look at social programming as the way to solve the problem. And then, at the worldview layer, people react against, we need a better youth ministry, and react against all those things. And they begin to say, no, 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 no. What we really need is we need more Bible education. We need these kids to memorize Scripture. We need them to, to be in the Word. We need to do expository teaching, and that youth pastor needs to be doing it every week. And, and there's people who feel passionately about that. And I hear them. And none of those things are bad things. But I want to tell you very clearly, none of those things are enough to get your young people back. It's not about programming. It's not about social aspects it's not about having the church do a better job of teaching it's not what's going to get your young people here in order to turn this stream of thought you can't splash around in the layers of the stream because God doesn't turn the water Proverbs 21 is clear God turns the channels of water And so what God is concerned about most in our lives is the ground. Because once you change the ground, the stream flows wherever the ground is lowest. And that path, the channel, is where that water flows. And so what I want to begin to talk about today is what is this ground? How do you change the ground of our minds? Based on way too much research, I want to tell you, as I understand it, the ground of our minds is metaphorical. That is, we are pressed at that level of thinking to think of one thing in terms of another thing. That we are unable to comprehend some things and so we have to attach them to something else. And so, if this thing is like this other thing, then you can use the math problem. X, this thing, equals this other thing, Y. And so we're going to play with the ground of our minds, and that equation will become sort of the language that we use to talk about how we think. Because we think, at this ground level, x equals y, over and over again. I'm going to give you some examples so that makes some sense. In order to hear the x equals y equations, you have to listen, because Jesus said, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Look at the heart connection. Overflow of the heart. If you want to know what's in someone's heart, listen to what they say. And so, as you listen to the overflow of the heart, you'll begin, over time, to be able to discern what's coming out and what the X equals Y equations are that are in there. So, let's try one. Time in our culture. Think about the way we talk about the overflow of our heart about time. I might spend my time with my family. I might save my time. I might divide my time, budget my time, guard my time, invest my time. And over time, what you realize is the overflow of my heart reveals an x equals y equation that time equals money for me. Because I save my money, I divide my money, I guard my money, I invest my money, and I do the same with my time. I even might find some spare change the way I would find spare time. We think that way as Americans. Lots of other cultures don't think that way. In Hispanic culture, they don't think time equals money. And so an American missionary shows up, all excited about starting the new service they're going to do in this village, and they say, come on, it's 11 o'clock, we should start. And they don't. And 45 minutes later, maybe they start. And the American missionary is tense because we're wasting time. This is costing us time. And the Hispanic people would say, we're not wasting this time, we're in fellowship, we're talking to people, we're engaging with one another. How is this a waste of time? But for us, time is money. And therefore it's not to be wasted. And so the schedule dictates how we move through our days because we don't want to lose time. And we think badly about people who, listen, cost us time or rob us of our time or waste our time because time is money for us. Organizations have their own x equals y equations. When you begin to talk about the identity of an organization, lots of people used to talk, not so much anymore. We're a well oiled machine, we are firing on all cylinders, everything's running really smoothly. All of that rolls out of the idea that organizations are machines. The downside of that is if you're in the machine and you're part of it, then you become a part of a machine and you become a replaceable part, and if you go away, we don't care. We just stick somebody else back in that role, and and that's not a healthy place to work. More recently, what we've come across is people who talk about organizations as organisms. And so we talk about the growth or the birth of a an organization and then the growth and it peaks and then sadly there's inevitably this decline that, that takes them toward death because that seems to be the life cycle of organisms. And when you think of a church that way, the way you think about it is, well, we have to somehow either make babies and get new things going on or somehow renew this thing and you, you talk about all this activity that has to happen on this downward slide. And I don't know if that's the way Christ thinks about the church. Because really, it could just be a circle that has seasons in it. And we renew it because we're family. And families don't necessarily rise and fall. They just have generations that roll in and and take over. So, just something to think about. We also sometimes think of our organizations as prisons. So if you're the boss of an organization and you hear your person on the phone going, yeah, I'm going to sneak out for lunch, but I have to be back at 1, but uh, at 5, I get out because I've done my time. (laughs) When you have to sneak out for lunch and when you've done your time, you're thinking this is a prison. And so when the boss walks in and says, hey, we're all going to collaborate together and let's get everybody together and let's get some ideas on the table, they're thinking, this is a prison, and you're the warden, and if I, if I collaborate with you, I'm the snitch. So, yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> and it'll kill your organization if your people are thinking that way. In our culture, another X equals Y equation is up is good. So, oh, you look down. Cheer up. Down is bad. He's depressed. He's been, he's been feeling low now he's up he's high in our jobs there's a jobs thing, there it is um, in our jobs we hope to move up we want to climb the ladder of success we hope to have be above people and be over people and not have those people over us because up is good and we don't want to get knocked down a couple notches because up is good And control is often up. I'm on top of things. Got a handle on it. I'm under sedation. I'm under the influence of drugs. I'm under pressure. And staying on top is is a better place to be. We think that way. Make sense? Whether we know it or not, we think in these x equals y equations that shape the way we see our reality. And they are really important. Now, the way we typically think is, God is up, Satan is down, and so I'm going to lift my prayers up, and I'm going to fall into sin, and we have this organization in our heads that we all share, and we all sort of understand it. Nobody really talks about it, that. That's where, how it all works out, but it's the way it works. As we approach this one, I want to begin to think about so how do you change an X equals Y equation? How do you get this new thing going on in your head? And this is one of my favorite examples. Um, So here's here's what a a typical husband says. (laughs) I walked in the other night and she just ambushed me. I mean, I had no idea what was going on. Boom, she threw a grenade right there in the middle of the conversation. I was like, what? You know, it was like, boom, I'd just taking off at the knees. It was like a kick in the gut. It was like, bam, right on the jaw. And I was like, what? It's like the wind was knocked out of me. Was just, I was just wounded and hurt. But I got defensive. I started coming back at her. I said, well, right. And just started this counterattack. And man, she came back at me and blew me apart. So I, was, I went out to the garage. Just hung out there for a while. But... But you know what? I'm going back in there. And when I go, I'm going to be loaded for bear. Locked and loaded, baby. Telling you. Full guns on that situation. But you know, you got to pick your battles. When we talk about arguing, we talk about it in terms that it is combat for us. It can be boxing. Man, she just keeps jabbing, jabbing, jabbing. It's like, oh man, it makes me crazy. Or it can be like war, where you throw a grenade in the situation or you blow me out of the water. Or it's like, I, just, I was walking, I stepped on a mine, and boom, I didn't know what happened. It was just crazy. And if you're a typical American husband, um, then when I know there's about to be a war, I run. I avoid it. I stay away. It's like, eh, it's awkward. She's going to kill me. And I go to the garage, or I find something to busy myself with, because it's, I don't want to... I don't want to kill my wife, and usually she doesn't want to kill me, so I don't know how to, I don't know how to go in there, or I get brave, ready to sacrifice myself, and my adrenaline starts running, my jaw tightens, and my voice gets a little tense, and I walk in and say, honey, we need to talk, and she says, oh yeah, Oh I know know what's going to happen now, and so we have a talk, really is a fight, but... You hear that word? We call it a fight. Mom and Dad had a fight last night. For a three-year-old, if you say, Mommy and Daddy had a fight last night, they're seeing, because they think literally. For us, if you say, oh, my wife and I had a fight, you're not thinking physical, punching fight, especially not grenades and guns, but that's the way we think about it. And that has what's called generativity. It shapes our behavior. It shapes the way we see our worldview. It shapes our social world. It shapes every part of the stream of thought. It shapes it, because the ground at our core, arguing is combat in this culture. But what if it wasn't? What if we could change it? And what if arguing was dance? Think about it a second. In an instant, my wife's identity changes. She's no longer my opponent, she's now my partner. And the goal changes completely because no longer is it win or survive, now it's move close, get in rhythm, find the steps, work it out. And the worst thing that happens when I dance with my wife is, listen, somebody gets their toes stepped on. But that's not lethal, it's not life-threatening. What happens when I get my toes stepped on, or more likely I step on her toes, is we apologize and then we step back in and we keep dancing and we're not trying to kill each other. And then when that happens, my voice relaxes, my hormone levels shift, my adrenaline level eases, my breathing slows, my blood pressure drops my voice relaxes, and when I approach my wife and I say, can we talk about this? She says, sure, what is it? Because I've given up X equals Y and moved to X equals Z just that quick. It'll change your marriage. And it'll change your church. We have some X equals Y thinking in churches. I've been all over the country, talked to lots of churches, done lots of little surveys like you've just filled out and what I realized is there are a number of them that are really important I want to tell you about three today that are part of my first book uh, The Orphan Generation the first one is the gospel the way we tend to think about the gospel is that God is on the right side and man is on the wrong side of this chasm of sin that separates us And God loved the world so much that he sent Christ as an instrument so that we could now walk across the bridge and be with God. I got saved off that gospel. It works. Campus Crusade, all sorts of organizations have used it. We talk about salvation in those terms. Listen, when we get saved, we come to Jesus. We come to faith. We come to a saving knowledge of Christ. We come to God just as I am. I come. That's the way we've been raised to think about the gospel. The problem is, let's let him go across, he's across. The problem is when our friend on the other side, the wrong side, begins to um, listen and we say, hey, come to Jesus, come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Come to faith in Christ. Won't you come? And when he doesn't come, at first I'm sad because I care about this person. But after a while, I get irritated with him because I made a wise choice going to God. And he's foolish. And I've grown and I've become a better person and I'm a good person and he's a bad person. And what begins to happen very quietly is, I begin to believe that I am good and wise and he is bad and foolish. And that begins to promote me upward. And when I talk to him, I'm talking down to him. And when we talk down to people, as Christians, our voice becomes shrill. We are not designed to rule from on high until glory. While we are here, we are to imitate Christ. And so, in that process, part of what you have to understand is Jesus did not think that up was good. We'll talk about that in the next slide. But when we talk, it sounds like we're just calling them foolish sinners. You're bad, I'm good. And it's repulsive to the people who are hearing it when we become shrill. A bride should never be shrill so let's get an x equals z on this gospel this is the new way of thinking and this is i think a biblical way and it's certainly a reformed um, presbyterian way the gospel is really that god is on the right side and we are not on the same level with god simply separated by some vague concept of sin we are dead in that sin We are in it, dead in it, prisoners of it, and we owe the debt that must be paid for that sin to be washed away. But we don't have a way to pay for it. And so God, in our previous example, sat passively and sent Jesus as an instrument, and nobody in here stood on their feet and said, no, that is heresy. But you could have because Jesus was not an instrument of God. He was God. And so the picture is, God left the ease, the glory, the worship of heaven, and moved down into the world, the pain, the suffering, the spit on, the bloody death on a cross, because he loved us. And he brings with him righteousness that he gives to us. He brings with him life that he lifts us out of our death and gives us his righteousness, he then takes our place in that death and in that sin and sends us away with new life, with his spirit in us and with his righteousness wrapped around us. But the glory of the gospel is he defeated death, he defeated sin, and he ascends back up. So there's us, we get a new life, and then he ascends and sits at the right hand of the Father and prays for us as we attempt to walk out being that body of Christ on earth. And so in the first example, X equals Y, here's the picture. Spiritual growth is me getting closer to God. And I'm going to learn, I'm going to know more about God, I'm going to get closer to God. And so we huddle away from the world. In X equals Z, the picture is the more clearly I reflect Christ in a dark world and the more my life becomes a picture of who he is then the more I'm growing in the spirit and it's worked out as we begin to move out and leave our safe places here's the terrifying part up is not good for God he's up but he was willing To go down and he came not just to us but he was willing to descend even into death and even into hell and out of that he rose more exalted because he was willing to go down there and the terrifying part of this gospel for me is God calls us to follow him and he calls us to lay down our lives. To come as little children, not as rulers. To come um, as servants, not like the Gentiles who rule over others. To come as babies and be born again in the Spirit. He presses us persistently down. The first will be last. He's flipped the whole universe upside down. And we still think, up is good. I'm going to get closer to Jesus. And away from those people. And that's not the heart of Christ. He died for those people. So it terrifies me when Philippians 2 says, your heart, your mind, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. If you soak in Philippians 2, 5, it's terrifying and glorious at the same time. But not to be taken lightly. So... See that little red line? That's the line I see. That's the little barrier that stops adults from moving toward young people. So, you preach the gospel, and you get the new X equals Z, and they're like, "Yeah, I'm leaving my safe places. Yeah, I'm going after. Them. Yeah, we're going to go talk to young people. Oh, look at them all. Oh my goodness, I, I wouldn't know what to say. I just, oh, oh well, I make some cookies. I don't know what to do. And they get afraid when, they, when they're pressed in front of young people. And I've seen national speakers come into my youth group and just begin to go, ah, blah, blah, and they just lose it because you know, it's different for them. So I want to disrupt that and take away that red line for you. And that's going to take us talking about young people, I think. I've got no clicking going on. That's the right clicker. you advance me one? Just one? new thank you be ready, I'm going to say click in a minute if it doesn't work here's how we talk about young people, again, Jesus said from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks and we're looking to figure out what's the x equals y equation that we currently think in and here's how we talk about young people I'll give you two ways I always put my hand here and put my hand on my hip, I don't know why this is just the, the crotchety old man voice ah, oh, I'll tell you what we got a whole lot of uh, little rugrats and ankle biters back there. But you know what? They grow up and they become these young bucks that are stampeding through the halls. We can't corral them into Sunday school. Why, you need a whip and a chair before you go in that 7th grade class. They ate that last teacher alive. Chewed him up and spit him out. You know, in that youth room, they're getting their paws all over everything. Chewing the furniture just a bits. Those kids are wild. And when you begin to talk that way, the picture that you have is that... Why does it do two? The picture that you have is that young people are animals. There's a pack of them out there, and they're monkeying around, they're horsing around out there, and they're wild. And when wild packs come around, old people get scared, okay? Because when you think they're animals, especially carnivorous scavengers then you, you don't go around them. The other way we think about young people is that they are, well, we, we just ask questions about them because we don't understand them. You know? Why do they do that to their hair? Why do they do that to their skin? Why didn't she put more clothes on? What kind of music is that? Why do they behave that way? Why do they talk that way? And we ask the same questions about young people that we ask of the most exotic tribes that we see in a National Geographic magazine. Why would you do that? Why would you live like that? I don't understand them. And so what we do, listen carefully, I'm getting some reverb up here. Um, Part of what we do is we hire a youth pastor. Why? Well, Well, he speaks their language. As if they're completely foreign to us. They are aliens that we don't understand. And when they come here, we hope they will become like us, dress like us, act like us, talk like us. And it's just not going to happen that way. Because we think of young people as aliens. And they scare us. And when people don't talk like us, dress like us, act like us, we don't trust them until we've had a lot of time with them. but I would argue that that's not the mind of Christ for young people please say it's not what I began to look for prayerfully is the Z how do we change X equals Y young people equal animals and aliens to young people equal something that will stir the hearts of a nation of believers and press them into the lives of young people And if you're a missionary, what you're looking for is that resonant image that is both scriptural and also resonates in the culture. And so I prayerfully went forward and watched a lot of movies. Look at those. If you're 18 to 34, you know all of those characters. Yes? Yes? If you're older, some people had a woman in the first service who didn't know any of those characters. But if you're a young person, I suspect you know nearly all of those. And those. If you're in the back and can't see it, uh, there's Peter Pan, Will Turner from Pirates of the Caribbean, the children of Lemony Snicket, and Daegle Montoya, who killed my father. Um, all of the X-Men... Goodwill Hunting, or Will from Goodwill Hunting, um, Lily Owens from The Secret Life of Bees, Benjamin Button, um, December Boys, Cusco from The Emperor's New Groove, Wally, Margaret from The Proposal, Lucy from While You Were Sleeping, and Russell from Up. And there's some more Alejandro from The Mask of Zorro, Simba, Mighty Joe Young, Hiccup from um, Dragon, uh, yeah, How to Train Your Dragon. Let's see, Hawkeye from The Last Mohicans, and on and on and on. Edward Scissorhands, Jack from Doozies. Those characters, Simon from The Saint, Jane Eyre, uh, Mary Catherine from Superstar, um, Jeff from Dragonheart, and on and on. And all those characters, Edward Scissorhands on there twice. And then, those characters. And those characters. Some of those are doubles, I noticed. Hancock, Anna and Elsa from Frozen, Snow White, Bambi, Jack Harper from Oblivion, uh from Kingsman, Secret Service, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? Here's the hard part for me. All of those characters are orphans. We have a generation of young people that have been raised watching orphans as their heroes because Hollywood understands that young people feel remarkably abandoned by the adult world. and that They don't know how to move into adulthood because they've not had good models and they prolong their adolescence because of it. And the orphan character also resonates in scripture. In the Old Testament, God is Father to the fatherless. In the Old and New Testament, true religion is that you care for widows and orphans. And Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. And while he's dying in pain on the cross, his concern is to make sure, John, behold your mother, mother, your son. He made sure they had that connection. Because in the mind of Christ, orphans matter. And we've got a whole generation of young people separated from the Father who don't understand their childhood and the potential to be children of God when he wants to be Father to the fatherless. Oops, sorry, let's go back one, was there? So I want you to stop for a minute and just sort of soak and review. First, the gospel is not a bridge that you come across to God. It's much more an active and costly rescue initiated by God on our behalf. And young people who do not know Christ are not animals or aliens, but they're orphans in the mind of Christ. Makes sense so far? So let's talk about adult roles in the church. Currently, if you listen to what many adults say, not all, but many, what you'll hear is that older people are the guards of the church. We even call some of the older people the old guard. And they stand making sure that no change happens. And they preserve the past carefully, and they guard and make sure that everything is safe that the facility, the doctrine, and the people are not disturbed. And they guard. Stop running. Take your hat off. That's enough of that. Shh, you're too loud. Stop it. And they guard. And they do it. Listen to this, young people. They do it because they love this church. And that's what they know to do. Because X equals Y for them. I have to guard this, because this is really important. And their hearts are not, we want to keep young people out of here. Their hearts are, we need to preserve this. We need to grow it. And if it's disrupted, it feels bad. And so, I want to give you an X equals Z for the adult the church. And so to do that, we'll reflect back on that list of orphans because young people feel systematically abandoned, Chet Clark, but also they've been primed by films to hope for an older, wiser sage to help them reach their destinies. Watch. Hagrid comes to Harry Potter, takes him out of, from under the stairs or from his birthday party, And he's away. Gandalf comes to Frodo. Morpheus comes for Neo. Yoda is there for Luke Skywalker, as is Obi Wan. Charles Xavier is there for all of the X Men. Gil is there for Nemo. Also, beware not all of the orphans are full orphans. Nemo still has a father and there's other characters in that list that still have fathers but if if you look, they're separated from their father hoping to be reconciled and brought back together which is a picture of the gospel Alfred is there for Batman the old guy, whose name I forget, is there for Russell Hamish is there for Katniss Everdeen Mr. Miyagi is there for the Karate Kid and on and on it goes Aunt May is there for Spider-Man Um, there's a priest there for daredevil they all have their wise guide the sage who connects them to their destiny the role of that wise guide is fascinating because all they have to do is connect their hero to a community they have to connect them to a new identity they get to connect them to a new power and they connect them to a new destiny So some examples, just so you see the pattern. Gandalf connects Frodo to a new community in the Fellowship of the Ring. Connects him to a new identity as the ring bearer. He connects him to a new power in the armies around around Gandalf that he gathers, and um, a new destiny to be the one to destroy the ring. Obi-Wan connects Luke to a new community of rebels. He connects him to a new identity, identity as a Jedi Knight, a new power in the Force, a new destiny to face Darth Vader. Dumbledore connects Harry Potter to a community at Hogwarts, connects him to an identity, and he is the one, the boy who lived. Um, he's now a wizard instead of just a kid living under the stairs. The power of his wizardry and the destiny to face Voldemort in the end. Which all parallels Jesus... The ultimate wise guide coming to a fisherman named Simon and saying to him, Follow me. And connecting him to a new community of disciples in the early church, connecting him into a new identity, no longer a fisherman, you're now a fisher of men. No longer Simon, you're now Peter. And a new power in the Holy Spirit and a new destiny. To be the rock on which the church is built. It's strange. But if you look at the pattern of all lots and lots of those movies, you'll see it over and over again. Over and over and over again. Because something in us resonates with that story. Because it's God's story. Written in creation on our hearts. I want you to consider that Hollywood has primed a generation of young people to expect that an older, wiser person will come to them and connect them with a new community, much like Myrtle Grove, a new identity in Christ as new creations, a new power in the Holy Spirit, and a new destiny. And when you connect with a young person, you don't know what their destiny is going to be. You don't have to. You just have to walk beside them, and their destiny will begin to emerge in front of you and you just guide them that way you don't fix them you don't guard them or command them or treat them like animals or aliens you just walk beside them offering your wisdom, your love and connect them to a community and and amazing things happen lives are changed communities are changed worlds are changed because somebody walked alongside somebody else so what? What do you do with this? If you resonate so far and you're kind of like, well, it kind of makes sense, so what? I would argue that first you need to narrow your task. That we tend to say we're going to reach the next generation. We're going to be a church that reaches the next generation in this area. Stop it. You can't do that. It's too big. All you have to do is reach one kid just one kid. That troublesome kid in your neighborhood, that kid that gets in your way every time you come around the corner coming home, that kid might be the kid. But the question you have to ask yourself is, who's the one kid? Who's the one kid I'm going to have breakfast or lunch or coffee with? Who's the kid that I'm going to pray for even before they know me? Who's the kid that I'm going to strategically love for a long time? even if they try to push me away or test my loyalty or whatever? Who's that kid for you? Secondly, I would urge you to leave your safe places. That we have routines that oftentimes stop us from, from really having impact. You leave church, you go to lunch in the same place with the same people and you do the same thing and you go to school and you do the same thing, you go to work and do the same thing and then you come home and then you have your time and you know, I, I know, I live it too. But the times that you walk up to a young person and say something significant to them, I promise you, they will never forget it. I could tell you stories after story after story of individuals that I've been blessed to have in my life who just came to me at a strange moment and said something that they cared about me and that they were praying for me or something and I'll never forget it it was important and I would urge you to have the mind of Christ regarding young people not just young people in this church but young people beyond this church as well if I'm family well let's do this first Those outside the church are orphans. But those who are inside the church are family. If you'll allow me, a stranger who walked in the middle of your gathering, to be family, how much more should those young people around this church be your family? And so you can no longer say, well, somebody needs to do something about those kids. Because they're not those kids any longer. They're our kids. They're part of our family. And our parenting doesn't stop until we die. We get to love them as family as long as God gives us breath. And then you guide them wisely. You get to know them first. That could be, you know, I brought cookies. I brought lemonade. I brought what I want. If I play the bass, I'll teach you to play the bass. Uh, I'll share what I have with you, and we'll start there. I wouldn't suggest you start with Bible study, honestly. I'd say you start with a relationship. You just engage them and talk to them and say, I'd like to know how to, f- I'd like to, teach you how to fish. I'd like to teach you how to surf. I'd like to teach you how to do whatever. And they'll be like, well, sure, we'll try it. And at some point, they get better at it, and then you get to talk about other stuff. There's a lot of young women that don't know how to cook. And I suspect there's some older women that love to cook and are really good at it, and these young women haven't had potentially mothers who taught them to cook, and they're entering new marriages, and they're like, I don't know, just microwave, and we're good. And that's all they've got. So if you start a little cooking group for younger women, I suspect you'd be overwhelmed pretty quickly. Especially if you've got to find an army base where there's women whose husbands are deployed. They're s- starving for some, somebody to be a mother spiritually to them or just a wise guy. Get to know them. Connect them to your community. Take him to lunch with you. You'll say, oh, he doesn't want to go to lunch with us old people. Sure, why not? It's fun. It's an adventure. It's strange. It's like a cultural experience. So you guide them toward the spirit. You help them discover a new identity in Christ. You don't have to preach it. You live it in front of them. They're, more cons- they're not concerned about whether you believe the Bible is the word of God or whether it's just an old book. They're concerned about does that book matter in your life and does it really change who you are? At that point, at that point, the Bible means something because I see the impact of it in your life. But until I see that, why am I going to believe you just saying this stuff? And you get to walk that out in front of them. You don't have to be perfect at it. You just get to do it. And you'll learn more than they will about you and about life and faith and everything else. So, And then you just watch their destiny unfold. And when you see they're really good at that thing, you say, you're really good at that thing. You should do that more. And they'll go, okay. And they will. Because they want somebody to notice them. They want to have relevance. They want to have something to contribute. And if you just ask them to come and and sit here and be a part of it, it may not be enough. They want to be part of the band. They want to be helping. They want to be working alongside deacons. They want to be engaged. They want to be a part. And then you share your story with me, because I love getting those stories, whether you're young or old. And the stories I get are like this. You know, this creepy old guy in our church came and asked me to go to coffee, and I was like, what? No. No way. But six months later, I never knew what it was like to have a grandparent. He's my grandfather. And I love him dearly. And then I get an email from the grandfather, who says, this kid scared me to death. And He just was a problem in the church, and, and but I invited him out. And we've met every Tuesday since then. And he just pressed me and stretched me in ways that I never thought I could still grow at this age. It's great fun. So I want to hear your stories, please. By all means, scottwilcher at gmail.com. It's easy. I gave Steve a DVD. There's other DVDs floating around here that... We'll walk your Sunday school class, small group, or whatever, just informal family, through um, six teachings on this topic that goes all through the book. The book is The Orphan Generation. The next book is on transforming church culture. should be out later this year. Um, and I do seminars for businesses as well because this is really important in Christian marketplace. And um, also just do consulting in places that are really hard to change. I like those places. They're fun. So... Does that make sense so far? Yeah. Okay, the, I said so far. You're like, what? He's only halfway through? I didn't mean that. I am done. Um, there, is, there is a luncheon following this, yes? In the fellowship hall? Is that what I understand? Um, so, and I'll be available to answer questions um, at that and delighted to do so. And the, so feel free to show up there and we'll figure it out as we go. But as we close, I want to pray for you. Um, and I told the last service and I'll tell you As I was driving here, um, one of the things that has been on my heart is that this is a new season. It's a new season for me. It's a new season for the church that I pastor. And what I'm seeing is it's a new season for the American church. And the way we've done church in the past may not work in this new season. And we don't need to grieve that because seasons change. Seasons are a biblical concept. And we celebrate what has gone before, but it has prepared us for a new season. And as we go forward into the new season, it's important that we do all we can to grow whatever God has called us to grow in the new season and not grieve the last season. We celebrate that and go forward and mark those transitions as you go so people know now we're here. So watch for it in your family. Watch for it in your own life. Watch for it in this church because I believe with all my heart God's brought us to a new season and new ways of thinking about how things were. So X equals Y is becoming X equals Z. Let's pray. Father, I bless this congregation that as they enter a new season, you would just draw the people here that they need to fulfill what you've called them to, that you would grant to them great grace, great joy as they go forward. I pray you'd grant to them eyes to see beyond the outward appearance, that they would be able to see the hearts of the people around them. I pray you'd give them ears to hear beyond the words, but to hear hearts. And I pray you'd grant to them just a clear vision for not very far in the future, but just far enough to make them excited about what's coming next. We thank you so much that you're a God who um, directs our paths, that you turn our hearts and you turn our feet, and you are good to us. And so we go forward with great joy Sense of anticipation that what's coming is really good. Bless this group. In your precious name, we pray. Amen.
0: Yeah, let's stand. We'll be dismissed. Um. We are actually having a luncheon for any of you who are involved in leadership at any uh, level. And uh, so, Lord, we pray that you bless our food and dismiss us with great favor in the name of Jesus. Everybody said
1: amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful
0: afternoon today.